When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. is meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to Psychologically Minded. My name is Grace Fowler, and today I am joined by a very special guest, Felicia Ting D, a college of mine at our pre-doctoral internship who specializes in working with adults in forensic settings. She also enjoys working with geriatric populations and has an incredible talent for being able to pronounce words backwards. (laughs) Felicia, welcome to the pod. Hi. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me here. Would you like to demonstrate your skill for the audience? Absolutely. So the first word that is probably one of my favorites to say backwards is the word telephone. Um, Phonetically backwards, it is enopolet. (laughs) I laugh every time, you guys. It's really funny. Second word is Sacramento, which is Ottenham Marcus. <laughs> and last, but certainly not least, um, is Goodwill, which backwards is Le Le Dug. <laughs> Literally, we make her do this all the time. And like people try to stump her. And I think since I've known you, you've never been stumped. There was maybe one time I stumbled. Yeah. And what's your trick for being able to do it? I visualize it in my head. Yeah. I go for it. It's it's truly fascinating to watch. I know you're only <laughs> listening to this, but it's truly fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't just bring Felicia on to demonstrate her special talent. Uh, we are today discussing the Netflix documentary, Our Father, which came out in... May of this year. It was like May 2022, I believe. Uh, and our father, so spoiler alert, if you haven't seen it, I would recommend you pause this now and go watch it because it's will blow your mind. And it's not that long. I think it's like an hour and a half. It's a good, it's a good uh, length. Yeah, easily doable. But if you would like to skip <laughs> the traumatizing documentary, uh, essentially what happens is it follows the story of a family uh, of half-siblings and one doctor called Donald Klein, who was an OBGYN in Indiana who practiced medicine until 2009. He developed a reputation as a fertility expert, helping many couples who struggled with difficulties conceiving. However, in 2015, as at-home DNA tests were on the rise, a woman named Jacoba Ballard realized that she had a ton of half-siblings that were related to the donor her mother supposedly used to get pregnant while under the care of Dr. Klein. She begins to dig into her family history and uncovers a huge secret. Dr. Klein had been inseminating his own patients with his sperm without their consent or knowledge. That's the bad part, which we won't be talking about. Um, There have been about 94 half-siblings discovered so far, and Dr. Klein has not experienced any legal repercussions for his actions. Since the introduction of at-home DNA testing, 44 doctors in the U.S. have been found to have committed similar offenses of inseminating women with their own sperm without the woman's consent or knowledge. This is just like the most famous one. (laughs) It's crazy. So I 
forced Felicia to watch this <laughs> so that we can talk about it. I would say encouraged and highly suggested. That's right. We don't do any. I also consented <laughs> to this, to watching it. Amen. Amen. Yeah. So we have a lot to talk about with this, obviously. And I did want to, you know, preface this with saying one of the reasons why this was a topic we wanted to talk about was that <sighs> Supreme Court. <laughs> yes. And essentially... This is a good vehicle, I think, to continue the conversation about bodily autonomy mm-hmm. and the way in which healthcare decisions, particularly for women, are often made without their input, without their consent. And this, although crazy story of these women and their children who are all related to each other without knowing, although it's like a one off unusual story, I think it is a really good allegory for what like consent really means mm-hmm. and what informed consent yes. <laughs> yes having the knowledge to make it to make decisions yes and in our field informed consent is like the end all be all of ethical standards <laughs> yes precisely so i think we're experts to talk about that we're not medical experts but we are experts in this concept of consent and it's like a conversation that we have all the time with our patients we do so that's kind of the backdrop. And of course, I couldn't get away with just doing another episode about abortion. So we're, we're slipping it in this way. All right. So I think first we should talk about Felicia. Why, why is this bad for the children that they are, there are 94 of them that are half siblings with the same father? Why is this bad for them? Well, I think aside from just health problems, which we'll get to, um, I think it's just the fact that it's morally wrong you know like it's the knowledge of having 94 half Mm. and counting mind you is mind-blowing and so the repercussions of that psychologically i think is a whole other discussion that we could have but aside from that um i think the main thing that comes to mind is health problems um something that they say consanguinity which is when there are too many relatives in one geographic location, which increases the likelihood of mating with a relative. <laughs> which just in and of itself is also, I think, pretty ethically immoral and wrong. Yeah. Shall we say? Yeah. And so there are much higher risks for poor lifestyle outcomes, such as higher rates of obesity, poor mental health outcomes, higher levels of mood, thought, personality disorders, Poor medical outcomes, um, such as higher rates of genetic conditions for consanguineous families than non-consanguineous families. Yeah, so that's right. And essentially, if you are, I hate the word mating, but like if you're having children with a biological relative, it's not just that you're at risk for medical conditions, because I think we as a society are kind of aware of that. Like, you know, don't marry your first cousin because your babies will be like genetically doomed but it's not just like the physical outcomes like there are there is evidence of more mental health issues because we know that a lot of mood thought and personality disorders have like a genetic or biological component so you're setting up your children to like not be well (laughs) overall but the problem in this case is that the siblings don't know right they don't know that they could be dating or having children with a sibling. And the reason why we're bringing this up is because in the documentary, they reveal that most of the siblings live within the same 25 mile radius, which is insane to think about. Yes. And it's interesting that, you know, it's something that the doctors had kept in mind with why they wanted, you know, someone 
random, someone not related to the patients or the siblings, and yet this has happened. Yeah. And they talk they talk in the documentary pretty explicitly about like when you're doing donor insemination, you want you don't want to use the donor more than like the same donor more than three times mm-hmm. because otherwise now we're in this gene pool that's too homogenous. <laughs> and like the like and I think this point is important because Felicia and I talked about this previously off mic, but you know, when you're first watching it, you're like, Well, for the kids, you know, Yes, it's, like, upsetting to find out that, like, your dad is not your biological dad. But at the end of the day, like, their fathers are still part of their lives. And they were raised by their their dads, not their biological dad. They were raised by these men, and that's who's their dad to them. And so, although, like, yes, it is upsetting to find out that your your dad is not your biological dad. Like, it seems like something that you could probably process and move through and still know, like, my dad is my dad. Sure. But then you add in these like genetic consequences and obviously never justifying this, but it just made it so much worse. And I think really hit home for both of us watching it of like he, he, this doctor signed these kids up for like a lifetime of health complications, autoimmune disorders, like, and probably mental health conditions and mentally. Yeah. And they never got to know that beforehand. And I think it's different because even though there are genetic components, both medical and mental health concerns um you know it's it's the fact that we can almost justify it in knowing that the biological our genetic components come from both of our parents Mm -hmm. whereas in this case they knew their genetic component came from their mother Mm -hmm. that could had no idea that you know another half of their dna was from a person who was supposed to be caring for them in all ways you know in in all manners yeah yeah and like even from a mental health perspective we do ask about family history like we'll ask especially for things like bipolar disorder there is a strong relationship between first order relatives and bipolar disorder so when your doctors ask you like do you have a family history of this thing it's not just for the tea right (laughs) it's because you may then have an increased risk of this and the 94 people are going through their life not knowing an entire half of their family history Mm -hmm. And imagine your shock and awe when you get diagnosed with like diabetes or a certain type of cancer or bipolar disorder and no one in your family has it, but freaking Dr. Klein's family has it. Oh, you would never know that because you didn't have like all of your medical information. Right. Right. Exactly. Um, and I, I, want, I do want to share like a little personal story, if I may. Yes, please. Okay, cool. So not to jump ahead too much, um, but for at-home DNA testing, um, I had actually done 23andMe oh. and found out that, or so I'm Chinese, just to kind of put that out there, um, and found out that I had some Korean um, ancestry in me. And just, you know, still my parents, still my family, still raised biculturally Chinese-American, but knowing that fact that I had Korean ancestry blew my mind. Mm. So as I was watching this, I was thinking, I was blown away just knowing I had like however minimal percentage of Korean blood. Yeah. Let alone if I found out my father was not my biological father. Like I could not even begin to start to wrap my head around that. Yeah. And I appreciate you sharing that because, you know, obviously it doesn't take away your identity as Chinese American, but how do you incorporate that into your identity when it's, even if it's just like the small percentage? Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, this 23andMe may be causing more problems. 
But then on the other hand, they needed to know. Exactly. And it could be unearthing, you know, truths that need to be revealed. Yeah. So I think for informed consent before doing 23andMe, know that it could blow up your family. <laughs> yes. But, you know, if you're already going to do it, do it. But just just know. Be mindful. Coming. Yeah, be mindful. Obviously, like, the children are having medical, like, physical, mental health issues. They don't know who they're related to. So, like, finding this out and then, like, trying to go through your life wondering. Some of them talked about, like, wondering if they had dated a sibling or not, especially as the numbers kept going up going and up. up and up. And, like, I, I feel like the trauma response to that would be really upsetting like i can i could see someone becoming very paranoid and like being very nervous to establish new relationships or isolative yeah fear that they would it could potentially date or you know end up quote-unquote mating yeah <laughs> with someone they're related to yeah and having no idea and like cousins is different like i know that there are like lots of people that they're parents or cousins even if like especially like second cousins like i think that's far more common mm-hmm. and they're fine but like half siblings is like way too close way way too close and so like those people if they had a sibling or they had a child together it would be pretty much guaranteed that there would be some sort of issue with that child so honestly it is like a blessing that they did not or at least none of them that shared their story in the documentary none of them had married or had a child with a sibling right yeah i <laughs> I even know that I could put into words how I would react if, if they had shared that story. And yeah, I'm not sure. I probably would have thrown my TV out the window. <laughs> we would not be doing this episode. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and I think we talked about this too of like um some of the siblings do share that they have like autoimmune mm-hmm. autoimmune disorders or like kind of chronic medical problems and they realize like no one in their mom's side of the family has this issue their dad's side not either and then when they find out that dr klein is actually the their biological father Mm -hmm. he had a history of autoimmune disorders and some medical complications yeah Yeah, i think the documentary had mentioned um spoiler alert that uh while he was a surgeon that because Mm -hmm. tremors in his hands he there was a risk of him not being able to operate and i think through medication it yeah. was managed, but that risk is still there. And that can carry over genetically for the children. Yeah. And they don't get to know that exactly. about themselves. Yeah. I think it was rheumatoid arthritis, which is an autoimmune disorder. Um, So it like makes sense the other, the siblings have like various ones. Like they don't talk about which ones they have, but also they don't have to. Like that's not, their medical information is like not for us. <laughs> um, But it's also, it wasn't for them. Like they didn't get to know all their medical information. And I, I think that I like like hitting on this point because it makes the consequences of this, like obviously the consequences to the mother are intense and we're going to talk about that next. But given that like my, I think both of our first reactions was just like, this is weird, but like you can process and move through it. But it's like, this actually has lifelong consequences for these people and demonstrates how like the psychological burden of finding something like this out has impacted every single one of them. And you can see it in the way they tell their stories. Yeah. And I'll, I would say not only not only the siblings but also if they were married as mm-hmm. well like the impact that that would have on you know their chosen partners yeah there was um the sibling who had mentioned seeing something like on 23 and me um and then wanting that for a present and her husband got it for her and i think he had like this feeling of this is not gonna end well 
Yeah. Like just having to be a partner and witnessing and being there for that spouse going through this experience, I think is, has just the ripple effect. The repercussions are, are unknown still. Yeah. And like the, the pain of watching your partner essentially have an identity crisis and an identity, like a lot of us have identity crises, right? Like sure. we go through stages of life where we're like, I want to quit my job or like, I want to get a tattoo. <laughs> Who, who am I now? I'm a tattoo person. Um, but this is not an identity crisis that most people are going to go through. So yeah, I think that's a great point of like the people around them. How are they? How would you support someone going through this? And I think the answer is like, there's no right way. And just like, it's going to be like individual, but it is going to have consequences for so many more people than just the siblings and right. the parents. So speaking of parents, let's talk about why this was bad for the mothers so off the bat consent yeah i think that's kind of the main thing that popped into my head while i was watching it yeah it's an interesting one because like the doctor was not having sex with the women he was performing like a medical procedure and they did go into his office knowing that they were going to be artificially inseminated the problem is that many of them either thought they were being inseminated with their husband's sperm for whatever fertility reason that needed to be, or with a donor that they had already chosen, which was most of the times like a medical a medical resident. resident, which means suggested that you know the donors were screened for yes health concerns. Yes, and if you've had any interaction with like donor culture, <laughs> you know that people are looking for things like are there genetic conditions. Also looking for donors that are like intelligent or in high performing jobs, like obviously not all of that is genetically determined, but with the hope of like the sample that I'm using will have good, a good outcome for my child, my future child or the best possible outcome. And that was not Mm -hmm. happening in this case. Um, And so I do have this like quick little definition of consent because I think I've talked about it a lot on the show in general and like obviously here we are again talking about (laughs) it, but I don't know if I've ever had like a full definition. So I pulled this from the National Sexual Violence Resource Center. And consent is an affirmative agreement to engage in various sexual or non-sexual activities. Consent is an enthusiastic, clearly communicated, and ongoing yes. One can't rely on past sexual interaction and should never assume consent. And I love that this definition includes non-sexual activities. I was going to say enthusiastic. Yes. yes, That too. (laughs) Well, tell tell me why enthusiastic is important for you. Well, I think it's the fact that, you know, you, we can say yes, but it's the delivery. It's how we say it, right? Like if I'm consenting to something or if I'm asking someone for consent, I don't want them to be like, yes, I guess. Like that has a very big difference than yes or kind of that excitement in that tone, um, which mm-hmm. is just that it is something that they would like and or could potentially enjoy. Yes, the enthusiastic of like, and, you know, we've probably all had situations where we ask a friend, like, oh, do you want to grab lunch later today? And they're like, mm, sure, but, like, I have a really busy day. Like, can we keep it short? I don't want to go to lunch with you then. <laughs> exactly. I'm going to feel guilty. I'm taking your time. Yeah. And then it's, it doesn't feel consensual. It doesn't feel, like, as enjoyable. Right. It's no longer mutually beneficial if one person is, like, checked out. I like that it includes non-sexual activities because, one, that covers this situation because it's non-sexual. But I also think for... Like if we're talking about in like context of relationships, Mm -hmm. like there are a lot of things that we do with partners that are not necessarily sexual or that may be like physical, but the end goal is not 
sex or sexual contact. Right, exactly. And I think tickling is one that is a good example of like tickling is a physical, <laughs> obviously. Oh my gosh, Felicia's having such a reaction because she hates tickling. Being <laughs> tickled. And like, but to that, and that is a good thing to know. Then if your partner doesn't like to be tickled, don't freaking tickle them. Right, exactly. If you don't have consent to tickle. Mm-hmm. And like, yes, it's not a sexual act no. all the time. Nor is it, you know, potentially life threatening. Right. But it's uncomfortable. And I'm sure like when someone tickles you and you did not want to be tickled, now not only are you uncomfortable, but now you're upset with this person. Mm -hmm. And like now I can't really trust this person because they're going to be freaking tickling me all the time. Or poking (laughs) me. I just. Oh, yeah. I'm having a very strong reaction here. You guys can't see it, but (laughs) I am. There's a lot of faces being made. She's holding it in, though. (laughs) We're going to be okay. (laughs) But yeah, like anything. And even even if it's like it doesn't always have to be physical, but they're like like any activity that the other person is not engage and enthusiastic about then we need to like double think if we really want to be doing this with that person and i think that applies here of like yes the women who wanted a baby were excited to have a baby they were doing fertility treatment Mm -hmm. for a reason and they had consented to being inseminated with specific samples yes (laughs) and and switching it out of the blue takes away the woman's ability to consent to the procedure happening to her and this isn't a one-time thing. Like, this is life-altering in that now she is raising a child that has a different genetic makeup than she was planning on. Mm-hmm. And in this context, this conversation about, like, abortion and consent and, like, women's abilities to make decisions about their health care, this doctor robbed those women of not only the decision in the moment of which donor to have, but decisions that they might have to make for the rest of their lives for themselves and their children. And just the knowledge, right? And the knowledge of itself of knowing that the the genetic component of the child could be different. Yeah. And I think one of the mothers even said, like, had I known or had he asked, had Dr. Klein asked whether or not he could put his own sperm in me, I would have said no. Yes. And he robbed them of that. And that is like, ugh, it's, it's hard to even like to talk about because it's just so disgusting. Yeah. Disgusting comes to mind too. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's the only word that. I would even go so far as like amoral. Mm. right like again i don't want to jump too far so i'll wait until we get to that topic okay <laughs> we have so so much playing you guys yeah and i you know and from like we're psychologists in training like we we have been taught i know that part of our ethics code is like you don't do anything to a patient that they're not consenting to and like the first thing we say to patients when they sit down is like everything we keep is confidential unless you tell us these like four things right. that we have to disclose <laughs> and I don't know how you approach this, but like when I'm working with a patient or even like in a group setting, when Mm -hmm. I'm doing group therapy, I will tell patients like, if this isn't working for you, let me know and we will stop doing it. And I'm not going to then keep coming back every week and be like, I know you don't like to do this, but we're going to try it again because they've already told you this doesn't work for me. Like I I love to teach four by four breathing. That's my favorite coping skill. (laughs) It's, It's so easy. It is. And I have had patients say like, I don't really like the four by four, the breathing. I tried it and it didn't calm me down. I'm not going to come back and make you do four by four. Fair. Fair. Let's try something else. Exactly. And I wonder, how, how do you approach that? Like when you're doing an intervention? Yeah. So I kind of approach it as asking them, like, would you be willing to try something? Um, is this something that, you know, if you are interested, let's try it together. See how you like it. If not, we can try something else. Or if you think it's something worth trying, you know, I'll come back, you know, the next day or a couple of days after, after you've had a chance to utilize it and practice it. And then we can go from there. And then we can either build on it or start fresh. 
Yes. And so like, yeah, I'm all about consent. I'm all about, you know, being as transparent as possible with them because we're working with people. Yeah. <laughs> kind of important to be, you know, as honest as, as possible. Yeah. And I like the way that you phrase it as like a question because then the person has the option to say no. Mm-hmm. And that is part of consent too, is like allowing people to be able to say no. Right. Having that autonomy. Yeah. And like, and like you said, these women would have said no if they knew. Or maybe some of them would have said yes if they like really liked their doctor or he explained like this is the only sample I have or whatever, which we're going to get into his reasons later. But like the the problem is, is that there was no option to say no. And like, sorry to say, but now with the Roe v. Wade thing being overturned, there are lots of people in lots of states that don't get to say no to pregnancy mm-hmm. and to and don't get to say no to essentially a lifetime commitment of being a parent even if you're going to give the baby up for adoption or whatever dumb solutions we've come up with like it's still a (laughs) life-changing consequence that you don't get to say no to right and the fact that it's um you know as consent is defined it's ongoing ongoing the fact that the fact that the roe v wade situation um it kind of puts an abrupt end to that yeah it gives you a very limited time frame of when you can actually consent yes which is no longer ongoing which you know kind of negates the concept or the definition of consent exactly especially for these states that are like well it's still illegal before six weeks i didn't even know i was pregnant (laughs) exactly (laughs) so yeah i think that's such a good point it's no longer ongoing and and i think a lot of women who have or a lot of people who get abortions already have children so with that definition of like it's not based on past circumstances just because you had a child already doesn't mean you want every potential child you could have like right people still have to get the option to say no in the future to the, the same experience again mm-hmm. i carumba <laughs> I, I mean honestly we may have heard of this but i always think of consent as like that tea mm. video okay um, i don't think i've seen it you haven't no okay so basically um it's you know saying what is consent and they're saying you know imagine you're offering someone tea and they could either say yes, and you you know you could go through the efforts and the motions of boiling the water, you know, putting the tea bag in, or however you steep or boil um, or make tea. Um, and the person could say no at any point. They could say, "Oh, you know what? Don't boil the water." Mm-hmm. Um, they're allowed to say no to that, um, and you shouldn't get mad at them because they said no. They just don't want tea. Yeah. Um, or you could have made, gone through the motions already. Um, you know, brought it to them and they can still change their mind and still say, mm, no, I don't want it. And if you ask someone, oh, hey, do you want tea next week? And they say yes in the moment next week, they could change their mind and they're still allowed to say no. Um, yeah. Ultimately, I think that's exactly what it is. It's ongoing. Um, it's enthusiastic because I don't want you to force tea onto <laughs> me. And I think they even said it like if someone is unconscious, they cannot consent. So don't yeah. pour tea on them. Don't give them tea. <laughs> Pouring on yeah, their face. Exactly. That is not right. consent. <laughs> right. Yeah. And yes. And that's a great example. And I like that because it's like low stakes. It's like a cup of tea. But yeah, if somebody says, no, I don't want a cup of tea, then they don't want it. Leave them alone. Yeah. Maybe they don't like tea. Right. Or maybe today they burned their mouth earlier and it's going to be too hot. Exactly. And it's, it may be a no now. But it could be a yes later, but it's still important to ask. Right. And also not ask like 8,000 times. Like right. we've dealt with the tea for right now. I can circle back later. <laughs> We can talk about this tea video forever, but I think we can move on. <laughs> so also in this context of consent, I wanted to talk about this article that I found, which is from Fletcher et al. published in 2020. It is called Contributions from Psychology to Effectively Use and Achieving Sexual Consent. 
so more recent article i thought it was really good that it just came out a few years ago and it was a massive article i don't know if you read it but it would not expect you to i (laughs) it was big but they talk about in this idea of consent that there should be this understanding of multiple types of power and two types of power that they talked about are called institutional and interactive and i think that those were at play in this situation so institutional power is essentially any power that comes from the organization of an institution or a company so for example a doctor has higher status than patients in a hospital or something like a professor has higher status than than students in a college and obviously dr klein has more power because he is a doctor in the hospital and in like the family practice that he had and so just by nature of him having more power than his patients consent is going to be harder to get because there's this power dynamic at play Mm -hmm. i think just the very fact that you know you have that title of doctor i think Mm -hmm. is indicative of some sort of power yeah right um our patients that we work with we do have you know more power Mm -hmm. than they do like for one thing um you know we have we have more freedoms yeah yeah felicia also works in the jail with me in case i I didn't say that (laughs) So don't worry that your therapist has more freedom than you. (laughs) But yeah, like it depends on the setting too. Like if we were working in a community setting, like you and I would still have more power than our patients because we are the therapist, we're the clinician. We are making decisions about their treatment, Mm -hmm. hopefully with them, not for them. But then you add in like a forensic setting and your patients are not going home Mm -hmm. every day because they are hatch the place they are being held and a lot of them have restrictions like they don't have access to phone calls all the time they don't have access to certain types of like some of our patients even can't wear clothes or they have to wear certain clothes because of the safety issues and every single thing that's like impacted by the forensic setting inherently gives us as mental health clinicians more power mm-hmm. precisely so we have to be careful about institutional power <laughs> we do a good job we're pretty humble. Yeah. <laughs> but you can also see how, like, this would play a role in, like, it's very hard to say no to someone who has institutional power. Like, when you get pulled over by a police officer, because I know Felicia's getting pulled over all the time for her speeding. <laughs> Just kidding. Like, if you get pulled over by a police officer, mm-hmm. they have inherently more power than you. And you are not going to feel comfortable saying, even saying something like, I don't want to talk to you until I have a lawyer. Or, like, even asking, am I being detained? Right. Right. Um. Oh, or even asking, like, if your doctor is like, oh, do you have any questions? You could have a bunch, but you take them at their word for as an authority figure. And you're like, no, I have all the information like you gave me. But then you get home and you're like, oh, crap, I should have asked more. Or what about this side effect of this medication? And, you know, I think that that speaks a lot about just having, you know, the title of something. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I've, I've been in that situation and I've seen our patients be in that situation where they wanted to ask about side effects of a medicine or about a diagnosis and they ask us because we're a little less <laughs> threatening than like a medical doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, but we don't know because we can't give them medical exactly. care. And then it's like, well, why didn't you ask the doctor? And it's like, well, I didn't. I couldn't. And they'll, sometimes they'll just say like, I couldn't. And it's like, or like, I forgot. And that could yeah. be just maybe intimidation maybe how they were just feeling in the moment yeah 
so many things. And you're right, like this idea of, well, the doctor should know the best. So why would I question them? Mm. And I think that's so true in this documentary. Like even when the, the, the siblings are first discovering that Klein is even their, the donor mm -hmm. or their father, like they talk about like, oh, we kind of had the thought, like, what if it was Dr. Klein? That would be crazy. And then it's like, no, no, no. Like a doctor would never do right. that. And we have this assumption that because someone has institutional power, it means they're a good person mm -hmm. and they've earned the power. Not always. <laughs> and that they would execute that power for good is the assumption. I think that a lot of people make. Yeah, definitely. And that is institutional power. And you can't, not that you can't consent, but like it's harder to consent or to figure out the nuances of consent with that. Or express that consent. Yeah. Yeah. Enthusiastically. Yeah. <laughs> so the second power type is interactive power. And this comes from factors of the interaction between two or more people in a consent situation. So actually, this is from the article. The example they gave is if you are like visiting someone at their home, they have more power over you in the interaction because it's their home and it's like their space and you're a new person in the space. Home turf territory. I mean, ter territory. Yeah. yeah. Home, home team turf. advantage. Yes, that one. <laughs> Sports. <laughs> and so Klein has both of these. Mm -hmm. He has, obviously has institutional power by being a doctor, but he also has interactive power based on one, how long he had cared for these women and their families. Some of them, he had been their doctor for years. And in one case, he was also the doctor for the child that he was the father of. Mm -hmm. So that, that like consistent interaction and his presence in their life gives him interactive power as well as like, he's on his home turf. You're in his office. Yeah. I think that, that one where he is, you know, the main gynecologist for his own daughter is the one that still plagued my mind. Yeah. That was haunting. And, and I have to commend that woman. Like that mm -hmm. was very brave to publicly say that in a documentary, but mm -hmm. essentially she shares that for two years he was her gynecologist and did pap smears and breast exams yeah. for her. And she did not know at the time that he was her biological father but obviously, retroactively, that's incredibly traumatizing to realize your biological father or any biological relative or relative by marriage, honestly, is like touching you, touching your body and touching like parts of your reproductive system. I'm like, pap smears be intimate. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. Well, I mean, for, you know, let's be clinical about it. They, they're touching genitalia. Yeah. Right. Like to have a biological biological relation or a relative touching your genitalia yeah. is disturbing yeah it's an it's a disturbing thought yeah even if it's not for like a sexual contact right. it's and n like there's a reason why doctors don't treat their families because like th and that's one of the reasons there are other reasons but like that is one of the reasons is like you're not touching on your family no. like that too close too too close and this woman did not get to know that and didn't get to consent mm -hmm. to medical treatment exactly appropriately. I, I was gonna kind of highlight that too like that this story kind of reinforces the fact that her knowledge was robbed by the very basis of her existing is that bad to say oh horrible i'm gonna rephrase that <laughs> like just the fact that her knowledge was robbed i think is bad enough and the fact of knowing her mother's choices were also robbed 
kind of hammered home that point. Mm. Yeah. Ugh. Just like up and down the family chain of trauma. Talk about intergenerational yeah, trauma. Seriously. <laughs> Good gosh. It's not usually like how we envision it, right. but really it's But this is it is intergenerational. true intergenerational trauma. Yeah. Oof. So okay, that's just and I, I highlight these power things just I think so that our listeners can be aware of like cons- you know, I think we hear a lot about consent in sexual situations and like you may have heard this enthusiastic definition before, but there are a lot of factors that go into how someone can consent to something. And so being aware of like who has institutional and interactive power in your life. And I think the interactive power also for me is a really good way to explain how someone gets into a situation where they feel pressured to make a decision Mm. and that they could be equals with the person they're in the interaction with, but because of the interactive power, it's it becomes unequal. And it's just, that's a public service announcement for all of you. <laughs> I mean, and this could be with anyone. Yeah. Or this could be with friends, partners, um, you know, family. I mean, maybe too close to home, but. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's why it's, and just to tie that all in, that's what is the big problem, I think, for the mothers is that this ability to consent all of these factors were like leveraged against them and so they are in positions where they've lost all bodily autonomy in 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 the process of a very delicate situation like fertility treatment is nobody's first choice and that's one of the things the documentary does really well i think is hits home like these mothers wanted these babies so much like they were and they were so ready to do whatever it took but in that process and like it's almost like he used their excitement and their like investment in becoming pregnant against them and i think that's what's like so horrible and almost like their vulnerabilities Mm -hmm. not in just the fact of you know it's a very vulnerable position to have to be inseminated um but also just the fact that they are going for infertility treatments yeah i can't even imagine you know the impact that has on them mentally like the couple mentally of you know not being able to um you know create a life on their own especially given the the context of the time too and the culture yeah which was like the 70s and 80s if we didn't make that clear (laughs) but yeah like this was it like we didn't have ivf in the same way and you couldn't like freeze an embryo and do all these other things and before we talk about dr klein which is going to be a lot of what we need to talk about here (laughs) i do want to mention like the the dads in this situation mm. which i found it very interesting we did not hear from them much in the documentary and i would imagine that's because this is probably very emasculating and not their favorite experience to talk about and also the context in which these women were getting this fertility treatment was that their partner their male partners were infertile the women were not infertile so it's almost like a double blow of not only was like their male partner not able to participate in procreating in this way some of them were, but it was like, obviously they needed assistance. Mm-hmm. And then to not only have to get that assistance and fertility treatment, but then to have like another man, especially essentially steal yeah. your offspring. Yeah. I wouldn't go on the documentary if I was the man. So I just want to like shout out to the men. Yeah. I know we've been kind of hard on you <laughs> the last two weeks, but I would totally understand why this would be sensitive to talk about. Mm-hmm. And I think you know, to kind of hammer home that point, there was... Um, 
a father who was quoted saying like that doctor took everything from yeah. me and oh that just broke my heart there was one man who was in the who was interviewed for the documentary he and his wife like interviewed together mm. and the worst part is that they were friends right with dr yeah. klein and dr klein inseminated his friend's wife with his with his sperm mm. like what what and right. i think this is our good transition into talking about why dr klein's doing what he's doing because like you're even doing this to someone that like you know you are friends with mm-hmm. and like you know obviously as a doctor you should be caring about all your patients equally but like this is somebody that you know very well like on a personal level yes like <laughs> like i think they said they briefly worked together on some things yeah they had been like colleagues yeah that's exactly it and so just and i think like they would go to each other's houses from time to time mm-hmm. the fact that oh, dr klein would do this still i think it's just like a total you know not to disregard the women's experiences but since we're kind of talking about the dads like another slap to the face yeah to everyone involved yeah fertility is already like a sensitive vulnerable time like you said and this just like the the ripple effect of this across the whole family and again don't fault them i do not fault the men for not coming on this documentary because like what an, a triple slap to the face that would be that i have to tell your story publicly but i do think that that's also those are the are people to consider in this story as well as like mm-hmm. the fathers who then got who missed out on having a biological child or having the child that they were planning on having with their wife jeez <laughs> I think that's like literally this podcast could have been an hour of us going. (laughs) And that's how you'll feel after watching the documentary. All right. Let's talk about Dr. Donald Klein. Now, you and I have a few hypotheses. I think some of some of them are different. So I'd love to hear from you. What are your hypotheses about why Dr. Klein did what he did? And real quick, we don't diagnose on the podcast because we don't diagnose anyone we've never met. Um, But we can talk around. (laughs) What might influence this type of behavior? So Felicia, take it away. So the first thing that popped into my mind was, um, for those of you who don't want to watch it, um, and spoiler alert for those of you who do want to watch it but have not yet, my apologies, um, is that they had revealed that Dr. Klein back in, I think, think the 60s, um, was driving a car Mm. and suddenly a little girl, um, I guess the documentary showed this little girl riding like a tricycle, like darted out into the street and... Um, you know, due to just unforeseen circumstances, Dr. Klein, I think, hit her mm-hmm. and the little girl ended up dying. Um, and so one thing that I, you know, popped into my mind, which does not excuse or justify this behavior in the least, but is his kind of way of um, maybe repentance or making up for a life that he took, mm-hmm. right? And kind of trying to create life in this way again not justifying it you know if he wants to do that he could have done that with his own family with Mm -hmm. and received consent to do so um but i think it's something that is you know worth considering as part of his his background and history yeah and i think some of the siblings shared that theory of like he's atoning for this like sin Mm -hmm. of killing this little girl and i i wonder and i think that ties into like two things because I think there's like something to that of like if you took a life and then became a doctor who specializes in like helping people create life. I think there's something there. Yes. 
and yeah. and that doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad motivation like i think there are a lot of people who go into a career because of a experience they've had in their past that they want to correct right or they want to prevent others from you know experiencing something similar yes probably 50 percent of our colleagues like are therapists because they want to prevent people from going through what they want exactly through. And and so like that alone, I don't think is a a malicious motivation, no. and and could be what's happening with Dr. Klein. But I think it ties into two things that we've we've hypothesized. One is that he's he seems to have allegedly, I'm just gonna say allegedly, a fixation on like his legacy. Yes. And this is clear. I'm gonna put some evidence out here. It's clear in the documentary because um, Jacoba, the main sibling, kind of spearheading the investigation, has a phone call with him that she records. And he is, like, imploring her, like, don't go to the press with this. Don't tell anyone this happened. Like, Stop there's investigating. No, there's no reason to know all, <laughs> all the facts here. And he keeps saying it's because it will ruin my reputation. And marriage. And my marriage. Which it's like, you should have thought of that on day one. <laughs> Why you were doing this to your wife. But I, I almost perceived it as, like, the reputation was more important to him. Mm-hmm. Of, like... My, he mentions like his church will destroy them because he was like an elder in his church, his reputation in the community, his friendships, like he will be alone mm-hmm. and and it'll hurt his children to find out about this. And it's like, well, yes, here come the consequences of your actions. actions. <laughs> and I think Jacoba even said that. Yeah. Yeah. And so if you're fixated on your legacy, that and, and that your legacy is like I had all these children who like bear my genes or whatever having that be threatened is psychologically untenable. Mm-hmm. And like, he starts showing up at meetings with these siblings and like lawyers and stuff with a gun. Yeah. Wielding a gun on the side as I, <laughs> it just gets more and more wild. I, that visual of him holding a cane in his left hand and then having a gun and a holster on the right side of his hip is just shocking. <laughs> I, I have no other words. It's just shocking to me. Yeah, and it, and I think my my first reaction is like, why would you bring a gun to like an Olive Garden where you're meeting right. your children that you knew existed? They didn't know they existed, but you knew they existed, and part of him had to have known like this was going to come out. A part of him had to have always been like, what if, right. if he has a conscience? Well, I think the fact that he shredded. Or he, that he said that he allegedly shredded the documents. Yeah. It's kind of an indication of that. That yeah. he was scared that it would come out in some way, shape, or form. And whoop, there it is. Whoops. Here we are. <laughs> I guess they didn't have good DNA tests in the 80s. And so he was like, this will never come out. He should, like when 23andMe hit the shelves, he should have been like, uh-oh. Yeah. <laughs> Here it comes. Yeah. Maybe I should have kept the documents and called up everyone. <laughs> and got a lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, I think like him reacting with this, like, like he was very threatening. Mm-hmm. He brings the gun. He's like, and he's very like rude to the, per their report. Like he was very rude to them right. and kind of short with very them. Very cold. Very cold. Not at all like their father. father. <laughs> he knows he is. And so I think that points to like, it wasn't about the kids. Like he wasn't someone who loved children and wanted to have 90 children and couldn't have 90 children with his wife. This was about some some other motivation that was important to like his ego and his psyche and not about children or or helping these women. It was not about helping women get pregnant right. at all. No. No. 
Because if it had, if it were, you know, truly just he wanted to help women get pregnant, he wouldn't have used his own specimen. Exactly. Exactly. Or like, Plain bro, go donate at the sperm bank. Right. Like, don't do it to your own and to your own patients. Then, it, then it, that to me also is like you have a captive audience, and you're right. using them for whatever you're you've got going on. Right. And like, I think patients themselves are considered, you know, vulnerable population if they're yeah. under your specific care, right? And so, yeah, you are. He was taking full advantage of them yeah. in many capacities. So one hand, so on one hand, we have the legacy, and and related to this is like he did kill a child in his. I think adolescence or young adulthood. I don't remember. Probably young adulthood. Yeah, it was like before he became a doctor, yeah. I believe. So there's like that legacy issue of like he's kind of trying to make up for a mistake. But then mm-hmm. there's also a like just like kind of spreading himself around yeah. legacy. I also think that the the like making up for the killing of the little girl thing is like a becomes a compulsive behavior. And I saw this as like he hatched this plan whether it was before he became a doctor or not, like, I don't know when he came up with this idea of inseminating people with his own sperm. When he realized, like, this is something he could do and get away with, mm-hmm. he could not stop himself. He he kept it going. And maybe if we're giving him the biggest benefit of the doubt, there was one time a situation happened, the donor couldn't make it, they didn't have a sample, and so he's like, luckily I have the right appendage. <laughs> I I got this. Yeah. But huge benefit of the doubt is like that was the first motivation. And then he realizes I can do this. Nobody knows that it's going on. Mm-hmm. And something clicked about it as a viable option for him. And one of the moms even says like, I don't think he could have stopped because he would like 94. He did it 94 um, times minimum. Right. That we know of right that now. We know of. Because there one hand could be more siblings. And second hand, there could have been women that he inseminated that did not get pregnant. And so even though they didn't have a child, like that's still violating their consent and bodily mm. autonomy. So I saw it as like a a compulsive behavior. And I say that not to be like, well, it's not so bad. He had like a mental problem. Like he gets compulsive. No, 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 no. Compulsive behavior is still your responsibility if you are finding yourself in a situation where you're engaging in a compulsive behavior and it feels out of control. It's still your responsibility to get help and do something about it. And, you know, as you were mentioning this, um, this kind of something clicked, my mind kind of jumped to, um, you know, reinforcement of behavior, mm. right? That sexual, whether or not he deemed it as sexual, that we, we don't know. We don't, right? Um, but the fact that he was getting some sort of gratification, that's how he could, you know, for all intents and purposes, ejaculate into a specimen cup. Um, he was getting some sort of gratification from that. Yeah. Um, and I think there was the added knowledge that he could be creating life like kind of playing god yeah on some level with this and so just all of that you know together considering all of that i think yeah it, it would have been hard for anyone to stop again not supporting him but i think you know understanding part of the, his reasoning is why we're talking about this <laughs> yeah yeah and and you know we try to be good advocates for mental health here and, like, compulsive behavior itself is not, like, a crime or, like, mm. amoral or, or unethical. No. There are lots of people that struggle with compulsive behaviors, whether it's in the context of something like OCD, OCPD, or other, like, mental health issues and stresses. Like, mm-hmm. compulsive behavior can happen. 
But usually what happens is when you find yourself stuck in a cycle that you can't break out of, mm-hmm. you ask for help. Right. Whether it's a therapist, a family member, something like you raise a flag somewhere and see what can be done. Mm-hmm. Because it's not just like that the behavior is bad or, or like interrupting your life, but like the the psychological consequences of compulsive behavior can be really upsetting. It's mm-hmm. stressful to not have control right. over yourself. It's like it can be embarrassing there can be shame especially mm-hmm. for if it is like a sexual behavior that someone is compulsively engaging yeah. in. yeah there's a lot of shame of admitting that but usually people are able to be like this probably isn't something i should be doing right or it's not sustainable it's not it's sustainable. not sustainable and it doesn't it's not conducive to your yeah. to, to a lifestyle to my functioning my well-being my family whatever and so given that dr klein like was a doctor for like what, 40 years yeah. or something, if almost like 50 years all the way through 2009, given that he was a doctor for that long, I'm going to assume he's pretty high functioning. Mm-hmm. He's well educated. He seemed to be rather wealthy given the house they showed <laughs> to be his. And then he like hired a fancy lawyer later on. Um, Like this, this person is high functioning enough that like he could recognize the compulsive behavior and, because it was not impacting his functioning to the level where like he might have lost his practice or mm-hmm. lost his wife mm-hmm. or his his family, uh, he knew that it was wrong and was covering it up and was taking steps to prevent it from being found out. And I think evidence for that is one of the women shares that he had her come to his office for her fertility treatments when no one else was around. Yes. Yeah. Like a lot of this was intentional yeah. and it becomes calculated after a certain point. And if your fertility treatment is always being scheduled for like 7.30 p.m. when even the receptionist has gone home, something fishy is going on. And not, again, it's not a victim blaming thing, but it's like, obviously this doctor is planning his schedule around or planning like these women coming in around an environment where he can be allowed to still do this compulsive behavior. Right. And I think it kind of ties back to like his preying on their vulnerabilities. I think one of the main... um, first siblings i think he was could have been willa's mom or jacoba's mom yeah um was saying how she was around 2021 when he first decided that and if this you know if jacoba's mother was the one that was being scheduled for later at night you know that's a very young age that's still a very vulnerable age so he not only took advantage of like the age vulnerability but just of the position that she was in 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 many ways yeah and it goes back to that like institutional interactive power and he's creating a situation in which he has even more power because yeah you bring a 20 year old girl into your office at like the end of the day and no one else is around and she desperately wants a child you can do whatever you want to her and that's really bad (laughs) and he did i mean he essentially did yeah and i think that is like the third aspect of like what could explain this behavior is like this this power and control Mm -hmm. and i think we've talked about power but like you mentioned this before of like it's essentially playing god mm. of like you are getting to create a life that you are a part of and no one else knows you're a part of it you have the ultimate control over these people's futures and he doesn't have to take any responsibility because they don't know like let's talk about like um how many people go to court for like alimony reasons or custody reasons and he doesn't have to be involved with any of that because no one knows nobody knows yeah i would have loved to see these adult children be like you owe me like 18 years of child support (laughs) times 94 times 94 (laughs) 
you should have zero money left when you are done with all of this. Which I think transitions us nicely into our last topic, which I'm glad to have you, my forensic psychologist pal here, to talk about. And that's that the courts won't save you. (laughs) The legal system is not set up to protect most of us. Specifically, as we've seen in recent news, those of us with certain reproductive systems. And or, you know, certain ethnic backgrounds. Ethnic backgrounds, yes. Um, And so, like you said... He doesn't have to pay child support or like get uh, have to pay alimony or have any of the parental responsibilities because he did this in secret. And that's one way in which like the legal system failed these children is that like th- there was no one to be held accountable. Mm-hmm. But the second way that it fails is like really outlined well in the documentary. And that's that uh, this man was charged with obstruction of justice. <laughs> Two counts. Two counts. Thank you. <laughs> And Felicia, did he go to jail? Uh, you yeah, know, he did not. He did not. And Felicia, no how jail time big was, was his fine for this crime? Oh, uh, I think it was a whopping five hundred, five hundred dollars. Yeah, and a suspended sentence. <laughs> I think it was like time served, right? It was like time yeah. served, so no jail, no jail, and um, just a slap on the wrist of five hundred dollars for a doctor. Yeah. Who, even though he was retired, definitely had five hundred dollars, and probably could have like asked his like stupid friends to give him five hundred dollars. Like he probably didn't even pay that fine. He probably could have just like stopped hiring a gardener. For yeah, a week for like a week and then save that. Allegedly. Allegedly, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so the reason why he's charged with obstruction of justice is like literally they interview one of the prosecutor or mm-hmm. the former prosecutor who was handling the case. Mm-hmm. And the prosecutor says, uh, I could not have brought a rape charge against this man to a jury in Indiana because they would not have believed, the jury would not have believed that this was rape. And as someone who <laughs> worked and lived near Indiana, <laughs> I'd love to hear like your perspective on this issue that the prosecutor brought up. Sure. Um, I think kind of considering what the prosecutor brought up and uh, you know my own experiences having worked within that state not the area but in the state um i do think it's a very it's a different culture mm-hmm. there um it is more religion mm. focused there is more of a religious stance um to the environment and to the people um and i think also just the fact that because of that component it's very hard to parse out the nuance mm. to certain populations and again this is not to you know bad mouth areas geographic areas or particular states or particular people but in general it is very hard to parse out certain legal nuances to yeah. people if they already have a preconceived notion of how things quote-unquote should or should not be yeah and i think essentially the prosecutor made the case of like well a jury wouldn't say that this is rape in like the quote-unquote traditional sense right. so why even bring the case if it's not gonna be charged mm-hmm. and and i think like probably indiana like you say more religious maybe more conservative but i think in a lot of places like you're saying in general people do see things really black and white and i covered the amber heard johnny depp trial a few episodes back which you can go listen to if you haven't heard it yet and like that one was a a thing where people got really into this black and white thinking and it was like only one of them could have been an abuser and only one of them could have been a victim and like that's not really what was happening (laughs) And I think it would be a similar effect here where it's like, especially if you're not in the courtroom or like 
part of the whole story like these siblings know everything that's going Mm -hmm. on but not everything might have come up in court and you might be looking at it as like well i know that this charge is like the definition of it is one thing Mm -hmm. and i i can't fit that this event into that definition right because i think the main and i I don't even think it was like the the prosecutor i think it was like an indiana like law professor who i mentioned that lady was cool was saying like i think at least in indiana as they had as the documentary had um phrased it was Rape as it's legally defined, I think, requires some sort of force. Right. In it, which in this specific case, in an infertility and in an insemination case, like I I'm not sure where the physical force would come in. So I can right. kind of, you know, understand where the prosecutor might have might have had difficulty presenting that to a jury. Because that's that yeah. is a very nuanced, you know, wording. Yeah. And I think you could get there. You could get to some sort of like coercive control regarding institutional power mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or like whatever. Or like it just by the fact of like the woman is on a table naked, like propped up in stirrups. Like you could you could get there. But yeah, they did. They did like explain it. It doesn't make it feel less bad no. to hear about. No. Um, but I also thought that this was a good opportunity to talk about like kind of the way that prosecution works in America and, like, prosecutors do not bring things to trial that they are not confident about winning because they don't want to be losing cases. So, although this this prosecutor probably could have spent some time figuring out how maybe this was a fraud case yeah. or a medical malpractice yeah. case <laughs> because the complaint was about sexual violation or sexual assault, mm-hmm. he, he couldn't get there. And so many cases in the U.S., like, do not go to trial. People plead out. They take plea deals, they or they go incompetent as a trial and they go to a hospital, <laughs> which is who we love to work with. Uh but like people are not going to trial as often as you mm-hmm. may think based on how many like crime shows that we have. And it's I, I don't know I don't really know where I'm going with this, but I did just want to bring that up of like prosecutors are not going after charges that they're not confident about. Mm-hmm. And that means that like if you have ha- been a victim of like a crime or something or like a victim of a situation like this the odds of you getting justice in the like traditional sense are pretty low yeah. well i think that just kind of hammers on the point of like how flawed the legal system is yeah right like how nuance isn't you know something that we think of as very black and white as the law right it's either wrong i mean it's either legal or illegal yeah but yeah there's so much gray area mm. to to you know manipulate yeah and we see it all the time with the population that we work with of you know and we may be a little more biased toward our patients and like (laughs) believe everything they say but like sometimes you know you encounter someone who's going through a a a case or a a court issue and they kind of tell you their side of the story and you're like "Ah, that doesn't really like you know obviously we're not lawyers we're not like legal experts but the like lived experience of people does not slot into the law very well at all not at all and, like, obviously, we're going to keep coming back to the Roe v. Wade thing. But, and, like, that does not, that overturning of that precedent does not slot into people's lived experience as well. But I think one also that is important to talk about out of the Supreme Court is the ruling they made about Miranda rights. And I don't know if you're, like, familiar with what they said, but essentially, you can no longer appeal cases on the basis of you not being read your Miranda rights or being read them wrong. Right. I do remember that now. And that has like huge consequences legally. And I think it's really important for people to know about because essentially that means that law enforcement has no motivation or um, 
like even accountability or obligation obligation to respect your rights mm-hmm. that you have when you are going your due process rights mm-hmm. yeah exactly and i find that very terrifying <laughs> scary Shocking. and it's not one it's not one of the cases that's getting as much attention obviously as like roe v wade or even the the gun the carry mm-hmm. uh, concealed carry case so i did want to bring that up and i know i i didn't put it in the outline so like no problem if i'm putting you on the spot but i wanted like especially from a forensic perspective like what are your thoughts about this kind of court precedent that your rights don't have to be communicated to you clearly when you're being arrested like what are the psychological implications of that yeah essentially? i mean i think it's just you know if we're st- if we're talking strictly miranda rights right now right yeah. i think the actual act of being handcuffed mm. regardless of where you are what the situation is and is in and of itself you know terrifying i can't mm-hmm. even imagine um you know the thoughts that are going through someone's mind when they're being handcuffed let alone whether or not they're going to be charged whether or not they're you know they have the money to bail out to go to trial what have you um and so i think because i i did read the case law from Miranda view arizona yeah. years ago um and i think just kind of if i put myself in that situation like i would of course want someone to like very clearly and you know slowly yeah read me right rights. like i need to know what my rights are yeah right and i think the very fact of you know knowing the, the that i have a right to an attorney knowing that i have the right to be quiet mm-hmm. right i think is very important and i think it's not emphasized enough and it's to the advantage of the court yeah and that's what's happening now is you know they're overturning these things some of them you know may not have the the course may not have all the rights but the people are definitely losing their rights yeah which is <laughs> problematic on a whole other level on every level <laughs> and so maybe this is your reminder as you're listening you have the right to remain silent yep. <laughs> lock that away for <laughs> in case you are in a situation like that and if you're in a car and an officer asks you to step out you do absolutely have the right to say um you know no yeah because there's there's no warrant you can ask to see a warrant that is absolutely your right yes and it and like you're saying like in the moment when you're encountering law enforcement or even being handcuffed or detained in some way yeah we go into like fight or flight like survival mode and so knowing what your rights are before you get into that situation regardless of how you got to it may help you in that you if you ingrain it enough in your memory Mm -hmm. you'll remember it in that like traumatizing stressful situation um but I think to tie it into like the purpose of this podcast, which is like pop culture and psychology, mm-hmm. I think that our pop culture does a really bad job of showing what Miranda rights are. And I'm thinking of like, you know, like Law and Order and even Brooklyn Nine Nine. I know we both love that show. <laughs> like, but some, not known for its accuracies. No, and <laughs> not a cop documentary. No. So do not be watching it for information. <laughs> but like, you'll see them do like the first part. Mm. They'll say like, you have the right to remain silent. And then the next scene is like they have the perp or whatever in an interrogation room and the guy's talking so much yeah. telling confessing right. <laughs> and it's like well does he truly understand and i'm saying he because it's usually a man <laughs> not not all men are criminals but in these shows they usually are does that person really know they have the right to remain silent because in every if in every episode you've allegedly read them their rights and then they immediately talk or don't have an attorney present or you know, don't seem to necessarily be acting in accordance with knowledge of their mm-hmm. rights, then I would argue that they don't know their rights. Right. 
and are not informed mm-hmm. in what is happening. And the information obtained as a result essentially is in violation of their due process so is not usable in in a court of law exactly and like in the real world could be thrown out well no longer no be thrown out (laughs) but you used to have the potential we used to have the potential we used to have the potential for if you had a really good lawyer to like argue that and so like part of you know part of like breaking down the pop culture stuff and like what we see in the media is like understanding the messages that it shows us yeah and not to be like conspiratorial but when all you see in the media are representations of people not remaining silent and not having an attorney present, it does not send the message that this is your right or how your rights can play out. Mm-hmm. And not that like law and order should be canceled forever. Cause like we love to watch law and order in a hotel or like on vacation, but I think it would behoove some of these shows to show this stuff more accurate so mm-hmm. that people, because we all get our information from TV so people have access to some of this information that's like appropriate mm-hmm. and demonstrate like modeled appropriately. No, I fully agree. Um, and I think <laughs> I'm just reminded of, you know, I went to um, school uh, with my, in my master's program mm-hmm. and I had a class with a police officer. Oh yeah. And I just, for whatever reason, <laughs> your law and order story just reminded me of, you know, a person who was saying, you know, I know my rights, you know, this is a violation of my, I think, the police officer quoted like this is a violation of my fifth amendment rights and the officer was like so you're talking so do you know what your rights actually are because you shouldn't be talking right. if you knew exactly exactly so i think it's just yeah it's definitely important to know you know what the right what your rights are as a citizen and yeah. the fact that they are being stripped away slowly is terrifying yeah and does not set us up to be in like safe situations no. And, you know, we love to talk about the First and Second Amendment all up and down. But, you know, check out the other ones. Right. The fifth one is a good one. The eighth one is also pretty good. Eighth one is great. Fourteenth. No cruel and unusual punishment. Yeah. I would like to not be subjected to that. <laughs> and we love due process. We do. Right to a speedy trial. And so, yeah, like, obviously, I'm not saying, like, go do a history class, like, study the Constitution like a weirdo. But, like, these are important things to know. And as we examine... The lessons we get from media, you know, they're not always accurate. And so, you know, not, I'm not saying do your own research because we, that's a tainted phrase, but be aware. Take it with a grain of salt. Yes. Right. Know that there could be reasons, even whether it's TV shows or, you know, news. Even, yeah. You know, there is a tendency to sensationalize for the views. Yes. Right. They want you to smash that subscribe button. <laughs> Ring the bell for notifications. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so there is that kind of motivation there. And so for, you know, our listeners' own well-being, I think it's it behooves a lot of people to know, be aware of what our rights actually are. And I think like you mentioned, like it, it, it's a scary time to feel like rights are being taken away or or like rights that had been fought very hard for are being taken away. And it's not just about Roe, but like, you know, voting rights, this like, you know, law enforcement stuff, your, you know, <laughs> access to justice and your involvement in like the criminal justice system like all of that is being impacted and one way to i think combat like the psychological consequences of that which are like stress fear Mm. worry like learned helplessness Mm. is to have knowledge right and to be able to not just have the knowledge but have had enough familiarity with it that it doesn't fly away in a fight or flight situation right and i think you had mentioned something else that i kind of want to highlight as well is like with the case of Dr. Klein mm-hmm. and now, you know, Roe v. Wade, 
intergenerational trauma, I think, is being, mm. you know, a lot of, is being stirred up quite a lot. Yeah. Um, so I think that's also something to, to consider when we're trying to keep in mind of our own mental health and wellness. Yeah. And uh, like our parents or the generation above us, like maybe having different reactions to this because they lived through eras where this wasn't accessible or this wasn't a right. And they're having different reactions because they lived through it. And we're having reactions to them and to like, wait, we always had this right. <laughs> now it's gone. And yeah, I, I do like that you highlight that. And like our father, this documentary is such a clear freaking example of intergenerational trauma. And of like, I don't blame anyone in any of the siblings or mothers or fathers for however they process this. Yeah. Because ugh, like, again, all uh, we can do is like make sounds. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's, it's just so hard to put into words like how they are processing it because, yeah. you know, we're watching it as, as, a, as, you know, audience members, but they're living it. They're lived yeah. experiences. I can't even begin to imagine yeah. their journey. And then to think about the like little title card that pops at the end and says there were 44 other doctors that did the same thing. Like, this shouldn't be that common of a lived experience. No. <laughs> and like, we don't know how many siblings are from those other 44 doctors, but it's like... But the, the fact that it's still almost 50 doctors mm-hmm. that are known right now yeah. that have done this is... Oh, horrifying. More noises. So... So that we don't end on a note of like psychological trauma <laughs> thinking about all those things. Um, I do want to just, you know, kind of wrap us up. We talked a lot about stuff today. We talked consent, like the genetic predisposition to mental health conditions, power, power compulsions, and, you know, the court does not right. protect you. <laughs> Felicia, what would be your like big takeaway from this episode for the listeners? I think, you know, not to put a comedic point on it but for real if you are going to do any sort of dna testing Mm. do be prepared um you know again i think i had mentioned you know i did 23andme and there is a reason that i chose not to you know make a profile on it Mm. this is to say you know again be informed be mindful you know have your information and you know be able to consent to your decisions and have that information on hand yeah I am going to like piggyback on you with my takeaway of like consent is mm-hmm. not just for sexual contact. It is for any decision or interaction that we are having. And before in like entering into anything, be informed, mm-hmm. know what the risks are. And if someone is concealing those risks from you, mm-hmm. it is not your fault. No. The, no. the women who were inseminated by Dr. Klein, none of them had any way to tell that this was happening to them and are true, true, 100% victims of the oh, yeah. situation. And it is, it is on the, it is the responsibility of the provider <laughs> or the person with more power to be providing information about all the risks. You and I do it every day mm-hmm. as clinicians. We are upfront with our patients about what the risks are of telling us things yes. <laughs> yeah. and working with us. And so if you find yourself in maybe a professional relationship or in some sort of like with a healthcare provider Mm -hmm. and you feel that they are not giving you all of the information about the risks before you enter into a procedure, you have the right, be empowered to ask for it or to say no and switch providers, get out of that situation because this is your body, your health, and you are a hundred percent in control of it. And your choice. Ultimately. Your choice. Pro choice on this podcast. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And I think, you know, just to, to, to bring a comedic point back, you know, 
consent can and maybe should have that enthusiasm present. Yeah. So if you're not like, heck yeah, take my wisdom teeth out. It's not time for your wisdom teeth to come out. Right. (laughs) We're time to get a different dentist. Yeah, exactly. Get a second opinion. Yes. I'm not giving medical advice. No, no. But yeah, you can have a second opinion or get a different dentist or whatever. Even with therapists, right? Mm -hmm. Therapist, if you're not enthusiastic about working with them and they're not respecting your autonomy, get a new therapist. Or you have the right to refuse treatment. Yeah. That is a right too. All right, Felicia. Well, thank you so much for joining me on this episode. Thank you for having me. It has been a joy to have you here. And, you know, we will see each other at work. (laughs) Um, But with that, I just want to say thank you to everyone for listening through to the whole episode. Thank you. It's been a wild ride. And we'll see you in the next one. Bye-bye. Bye. To see the sources and resources mentioned in the episode, visit psychologicallymindedpod.com or click the link in the show notes. To contact me with any questions or comments about this topic or upcoming episodes, email me at psychmindedpod at gmail.com. Please rate and review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you and see you in the next episode.